A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. We're into week two at the Australian Open, and what a climax to the event we have in store. After Djokovic's five-set, five-hour win over Stanislas Vavrinka, is it time for a tie-break in the fifth set? We discuss your views. And in our big interview, we speak to the great Martina Hingis about her success here and how she would play Serena Williams today. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. We're deep into week two now of the Australian Open and it has been exciting so far. Stanislas Wawrinka against Novak Djokovic. Will anybody ever forget that five-set match? Five hours and two minutes, 12-10 in the fifth set. Djokovic survives. Federer's still in. He's making mincemeat of this supposed nightmare draw that he's got. And Andy Murray's in as well. So it's going to be thrilling. It's going to be exciting. The women's draw's looking a bit tasty too. Lee Nara has just beaten Agnieszka Radvanska, so that was a bit of a shock. And Catherine Whittaker's here. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm always here. I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. You're an ever-present, aren't you? Uh, well, it's been some week uh, at the Australian Open. Of course, we last spoke, I think it was last Thursday, didn't we? And we were we were sort of midway through the uh, the Laura robson uh, Petra Kvitova match at the time. That one finished 11-9 in the third set, so that was a bit of a thriller as well. And But it's Sloane Stephens who's come through in that section of the draw. She's now going to play against uh, Serena Williams. What, what do you think about that one? This is sort of uh, the master against the protégé, isn't it? the second matchup they met in was it Brisbane or was it Sydney Brisbane, Brisbane I think yeah and uh, I mean it only it never looked like Serena was going to lose that but then again Sloan challenged her as much as anybody has probably in the last six eight however many months that she's been utterly dominant so and I think I saw I saw quite a bit of uh, Sloan Stevens match against Laura Robson and I saw improvements in her since that that Brisbane match so she's got nothing to lose I think she'll have a great crack I love her attitude I think she's sensational for the game um, and I just hope she stays that way because on and off the court I think she's she's fantastic I think she will lap up the occasion um, I, d- I don't think we're going to see a rabbit in the headlights type you know one in love demolition I think she will rise to the occasion which is you know good for the tournament and for the crowd I'm still not picking her to win, but... <laughs> She's got a career advertising Colgate, I can tell you that, because she has got the best smile uh, of any player I've ever seen, and it lights up the room, so... Other it's gonna... toothpastes are available. Yes, we don't do advertising here on the Tennis Podcast, not unless you pay us. Anyway, uh, what else can we talk about? It's, uh, it's not been a good week so far for me in the prediction stakes, because uh, Juan Martin Del Potro and Caroline Wozniacki, who I have predicted, are going to reach Grand Slam finals this year, 
haven't even made the second week. Well, I think uh, I think Caroline just about squeaked into week two, didn't she, before she got beaten by Svetlana Kuznetsova? Yes, she played second Monday, so that's week two. But a final, it ain't. So uh, the less said about that, the better, I think. But good on Kuznetsova, because she dropped way down the rankings last year and uh, and is coming back strong. So uh, good on her. It's going to be very interesting to see if anybody can do anything to beat Serena Williams. Of course, uh, Maria Sharapova is in extraordinary form. She's lost just five games in four matches. It's daft. That's five six-love sets. It's a record, isn't it? It's, it's, when was the last time? It's sometime in the 70s, wasn't it? I can't remember who it was. Or... Before even I was born. Wow. That, well, they, that's just to show how long ago it was. <laughs> Charming, isn't it? Uh, but uh, what else have we got to talk about? Martina Hingis is our big interview, of course, uh, on the tennis podcast today. And she is a player who's beaten Serena Williams here at the Australian Open. Eight, six in a third set. So she knows how to do it. And we asked her advice, didn't we? So it's going to be very interesting to see whether she has any clues as to how to unlock the Serena Williams game. But it's the form of Sharapova that makes things interesting because, you know, her, her record isn't great against Serena, but I don't think I'll ever forget what she did to Williams at the 2004 Wimbledon when she beat her as a 17-year-old. That's true, but then far more recent than that is what Serena did to her in the uh, Olympics final, which was quite brutal. Um, so I, I, I think even with the, the, uh, the form that she's in, losing five games in four matches which just saying it out loud then sounds utterly absurd, doesn't it? It's ridiculous. But uh, I'm sticking with Serena. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, even I've predicted Serena. So, you know, there's a chance she might lose based on sheer jinx factor of me picking her to win the title. What about the men's draw? We were talking about Roger Federer and this nightmare draw he's had. And yet, in many ways, it feels as though that's helped him. He, his, his, his reflexes and his instincts are razor sharp at the moment. And look at him. He's beaten Bernard Tomic in straight sets. He's beaten Milos Raonic last night in straight sets. I don't know whether Raonic was 100% last night. He looked a little bit, a, a little bit as though he didn't feel that great out there. But still, I don't think on last night's form he would have been able to beat Federer in that form. No, the question is who is able to beat Federer in this form. He seems, to me, he seems to be doing that classic Federer thing of perhaps a couple of years ago now of um, raising his game every round and doing doing just enough, um, knowing what's necessary and doing exactly that, not expending any additional energy. He seems utterly serene in his press conferences, totally within himself, I suppose, and, and with a lot more still to give um, I'm just racking my brains to think who he's got in Joe Wilfred Songer next Ooh, and Songer I spoke to Roger Rashid his new coach a couple of days ago and he's he's got him in the boot camp that Rashid likes to put players through he's dropped some weight as uh, Joe Wilfred Songer he's beaten Federer from two sets to love down at Wimbledon to win in five could it happen? It could happen I like the look of that match and uh, it's funny Songer in his his press conferences has been very down on himself he's obviously setting himself high targets maybe you'd heard that I predicted he would win something or something <laughs> he just I didn't he, Joe honest I haven't seen him I haven't seen him yet say yeah I was happy I was happy with that performance he has definitely been been slightly downbeat on himself in his press conferences so he's obviously got high expectations of himself here which is a good thing and uh 
I, if that's anything to go by, I guess he'll go into the Federer match expecting expecting to win. And why not? If he produces, you know, his best tennis, then it's absolutely possible. But Federer produces his best tennis more often than Songa produces his. And that's why they are where they are in the rankings, I suppose. Yes, very, very true. Well, I mean, it's going to be going to be an interesting one because certainly Songa will come at Federer. We know that, but uh, they played here a few years ago. I remember, and Federer completely dismantled Songa. So, you know, it's 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 certainly going to be Federer as the favourite in that match. In that half of the draw as well, some shocks have been coming. I mean, obviously, uh, now that I've completely put the shackles on uh, poor old one Martin Del Potro, he lost to uh, Jeremy Chardy, but Chardy hit four times as many forehand winners as Del Potro in that match he now plays against Andy Murray you know that's a, a surprising quarter final but he's a swashbuckling buckling player isn't he Shardy and if he comes out firing Murray hasn't had that many competitive matches that's almost a problem for him I think yes I think you could I think you could be right it's been a French domination in that side of the draw hasn't it it's it's funny there have been so many French but getting to the fourth round but all in that one side of the draw very very funny how that's worked out but Shardy has had some long matches and uh, that could go one way that could you know he could capitalise on the momentum he's obviously got going um, but <sighs> Murray looks good to me I think he looks again within himself um, in a way that we perhaps haven't seen Murray in early rounds of slams before. He's perhaps looked like he's expending a little more energy um, than you'd like him to in, in week one and, and not leaving quite enough for week two. But this week he has looked within himself in the way that champions do in the do, early Do you not think, slams. though, that when he gets to the... Um, the, the let's, let's assume he gets to the semis. Let's assume Federer gets to the semis as well. They face each other. It's a night match, Australian Open. Federer has played against Davidenko, Tomic, Ranic and Songa and had to really pull out the stops and produce his best tennis and have, have his A game tuned in right from the start. Murray has played... Gilles Simon, who's clearly wasn't 100% fit anywhere close. Uh, Jeremy Chardy, who's a surprise quarter-finalist and not had a real test of any type. And suddenly they come out on a night session with Federer having played, I think, probably four out of his five matches under lights in a night session because I assume Songa will be a night, night match as well. Murray won't have played any of them. He, he's played day matches, he's played on Hisense Arena... I think that plays majorly into into Roger Federer's hands. I think that is a a good point. I think Murray will be. I think it's unfortunate that from a. I think it's no disrespect for Shardy, but I think it's unfortunate that Murray has got him in the quarters because how can you put that as the night match when you've got Federer Songa on the same day? I mean, and I agree. I think that puts him at a disadvantage. You know, semis and finals are all played at night, and Murray won't have played a Rod Laver Arena night session match. Um, you can't blame the organisers for wanting to put Federer Songa in the night session match, though. Um, that's almost a no-brainer, really. It's, yeah, it is. It's just unfortunate for Murray. Um, I just hope that he's experienced enough now not to let that sort of thing get to him but I think you're right I think there's a chance that that could be a significant factor that having all been said 
if you tell Murray he can't do something or if something's not going to work out, he is going to prove you wrong. That is going to be his in- intention. Uh, I always remember Brad Gilbert saying Andy Murray is a natural contrarian. If you say red, he says black. And it is absolutely true. He's a lovely bloke and I really like Andy Murray and I think he's endlessly polite. He's always polite to be around and, and he's got a cracking sense of humour. He's another one who makes you look a bit daft if you haven't got your wits about you. But, you know, he he is a bloody-minded individual who, who just will not back down until you beat him down. And, and I suspect, I, oh, I think it could be an absolute corker, him against Federer, in this sort of form, under lights at the Australian Open in the semi-finals. I hope I'm not jinxing it. I don't, I don't mean any, you know, it's, it's harsh on Shadi and Songa to be talking about it at this early stage because I love watching Songa. Shadi's having a great run, he's fun. But it would be a kind of a shame if we didn't get Murray Federer. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I'm already, I'm already gearing up for the Murray Federer semi-final. <laughs> I will be hugely disappointed if if that doesn't happen. But I feel quite confident that it will. I'm hoping that that Federer's quarter with Songa doesn't disappoint before then, because um, that could also be uh, fantastic for spectators. But Murray Federer is what it's all about, and. Um, I don't know, it'd be interesting, your point there about, you know, tuning yourself up by having some tough matches in in week one. It'd be interesting to see whether that's the effect that match against Vavrinka has on Djokovic or whether, you know, is he now going to be fully tuned and on absolutely sensational form or is he going to be quite damaged by the length of the match and by the nature of the match? And- what do you think? Well, he's world number one, isn't he? How can you... And last year in the semis here, he had that match against Murray and still came back and won a six-hour final against Rafa. So. I think he's going to be absolutely fine. I think it's going to ultimately help him. I think he's going not He's not going to be stopped. I mean, we've just had David Ferrer and Nicolas Almagro go out onto the court to start their match, and it's just early stages of it, and they're going to beat each other into submission. And then tonight, I mean, I think Thomas Burditch is very dangerous. I should, I should add that. And doubtless, by the time this podcast actually gets uploaded, you'll be looking back and thinking, hold on, Thomas Burditch has beaten Novak Djokovic. What are you talking about? But anyway, it's, it hasn't been played yet, and I can't see... I can't see Djokovic losing, having had a match like that. I think he's going to get to the final. And Even well, if he goes on to have a semi-final against David Ferrer, uh, he, I mean, that could easily be a very physically testing match, couldn't it? Yeah, but they they played each other at the US Open, did, did they not, I think, in the yes. semis as well? And, um, you know, I, I, I can't see it. I, I can only yeah. say what I, what I think, and, and I think that... Um, I think that Novak Djokovic is is going to benefit hugely from from that match against Stanislas Vavrinka. Where were you watching that one? I mean, were you, were you were you on the edge of your seat watching that one? Uh, I was. I was here for much of it, and then uh, early in the fourth set, I got the tram home and watched the end uh, from home. And uh, yeah, I it, I was gutted for Vavrinka. I mean. What, what there can't have been anything that anybody could have said to him to to make that better. He's just got to reconcile it with himself, hasn't he? And but the only thing is, you know, he did everything he could. I mean, even on that match point, doesn't that make it worse? He did no, everything so. he could, and it still wasn't enough. What are you talking How about, Catherine? He he threw the kitchen sink at Novak Djokovic. Yeah. He can come off the court with zero regrets. He threw no, the no big regret. backhand cross court. He was whacking the forehand no regrets, down the line. But plenty of disappointment 
and and heartbreak. Regret, you know, regrets is one factor, but knowing you could not have given point one of a percent more, and you st- you still weren't enough. I think you can reconcile that. I think you can you can be comfortable with the fact that you did all you could, and the other guy was just too good. Yes, I, you can be comfortable with it, but I still think there's some some tragedy in it. Oh, that's very tragedy. <laughs> well, um, let's be honest. Uh, Catherine and I, we can barely keep the ball in court when we play. So here we are talking about how a player feels deep in the Hang fifth on a set. Minute. Neither of us have seen one another play tennis. Well, so. I know I can't keep the ball in court. Do I, well, I'm saying nothing. It's probably best to. Uh, <laughs> I'll play my cards close to my chest on this one. Fair enough. Uh, let's uh, hear what you guys think about. Um, the fifth set tie-break rule. Uh, but first of all, I think we need to get the view of Catherine Whitaker because this was 12-10 in the fifth set and the quality of tennis started to drop alarmingly in that fifth set as they were, as they were just becoming increasingly fatigued. You were getting a lot of love service games. Service was dominating simply because they didn't have the energy left, I don't think, to, to, to mount a challenge. And, it, you know, I've always been of the view that you should play it out, that you should have, you know, and, and some of my great tennis memories, 21-19 in the fifth set here, the Australian Open, Eunice Elenawi and Andy, Andy Roddick. Um, 16-14 final set with Federer and Roddick at uh, Wimbledon, albeit I don't think that final set was the greatest, greatest excitement because, again, it was service-dominated. Um, and obviously there's the 70-68 Isna Mahu match, which just for statistical masochists like me uh, quite enjoyed however I'm starting to come around to the view that you need an end point in a match and uh, and you need to know when it's going to finish so that everybody can concentrate their mind and you can have a climax and you know it's coming Catherine Whittaker what do you think? I am wholeheartedly in favour of a fifth set tiebreak for three distinct reasons the first is what is what you said that I think you quite often see a drop-off in the quality of tennis in uh, the latter stages of of, of of a long fifth set the second is that I think a fifth set tiebreak is a fitting climax and a crescendo to match it's something that you know you're building towards for you know you've got it to to look forward to or whatever for the for the fifth set, everything's building towards that peak. And the third reason, which I think is almost the most significant, and I have no idea whether you're going to agree with me here, but I felt it for a long time, is that serving first in a fifth set with no tie break is too large an advantage. I I feel being serving the difference between serving at at 5-6 to stay in the match and serving at 6-all to go ahead is enormous psychologically in my view Andy Roddick Wimbledon 2009 uh, he served to stay in in the match against Roger Federer so 16-14 how many times would that have been 8 times 9 times it's amazing that he managed to do that that many times and um who knows? I mean, it's sliding doors, isn't it? But I can't help but feel that had Roddick been serving first, he would have won that match. 
Oh, oh dear, all the Federer fans are up in arms. What are you talking about? Roger Federer, this is... He would have won that well, Wimbledon final. Hang on a second. I put it to you. Do you think it played a factor in Vavrinka Djokovic, who was serving first in that fifth set? Honestly. I don't. I don't really think it played a factor because I just think that Djokovic is that little bit more mentally strong, generally. Well, yeah, but it favours... Perhaps it's only a factor in those matches where it's somebody where you're playing one of the top four, where you're playing the world number one or the world number two. We can't have a rule just for the top four. No, but I think it's a rule that it, it, it would have neutral effect elsewhere and positive effect in terms of fairness in, in those minority of matches. Um, well, hold on. Grant Simpson here has written into us uh, at Tennis Podcast uh, on Twitter. And he said, well... You know, would we remember that match at all if it had ended with a fifth set tiebreak? You know, it finished twelve ten. You got that extraordinary rally at the end. You know, you'd have lost all that. Of course, are you saying that nobody remembers that? You're saying that tiebreaks aren't memorable. Try telling that to John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg. I'm saying that fifth sets are more memorable at the other Slams than they are at the U.S. Open. How many fifth set tiebreaks at the U.S. Open can you remember? Stony and, silence. And, Andy Roddick, David Nalbandian. Um, I think I've got her here, you know. I've got her here. She's, she's worried. Just because I can't remember a, any absolute specific fifth set tie breaks, I can remember some cracking five set matches that weren't diminished by not going to 2018 in the fifth. But you can also accept that some of those extraordinary... Well, come on, 21-19 here in the fifth with Elenaui and Roddick. Okay. That was one of the great moments of all time. It was. Okay, I, I, I present to you another argument. How about we get Blaz Kavcic in here and ask him how he feels about a fifth set tiebreak? Because what was it? It was 10-8 in the fifth against uh, James Duckworth here in the second round uh, in 42-degree heat, and he was hospitalised after that match. Um, and totally unable to do to do anything in his following round so i think he might i don't want to speak for him blaz over here mate i suggest no he's not here might have some quite compelling arguments uh in favor of a fifth set tie break that ought not to be ignored because i mean who knows how long that could go on to affect him for in his career Stephen Malloy is saying on Twitter it's not about quality it's rewarding mental and physical strength you must must break your opponent even after five sets tie break is a lottery tie breaks a lot I mean again I don't have the stats to hand and the internet's down here at the moment so I can't I can't bring it up on on my laptop but if you think a tie breaks a lottery, I would suggest the tie break records of the top four might argue against that. Because I, I reckon they've got pretty strong tie break records. I said to Stephen in reply to that, I said, well, you know, TV and radio need an end point. And he wasn't having any of it. He said, to be honest, I don't regard being better for TV and radio as a reason to change anything. This is a sport, not a programme. Well, I can tell you plenty of things are determined by TV and radio, so... Sports should never adapt to TV, he says, although it already has to a degree, with game times and so on. But to change the rules, no. Anyway, that's Stephen Malloy's view. Uh, let's let's give you a few other views here. There's, there's loads of people writing in here at Tennis Podcast. Catherine has 
trying to get in here and, 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 and interrupt me, but I'm not having it. Uh, we've got here Aaron Thurstance, who's said uh, he's been saying it for years. It, it would make for better spectacles in the winner games in the winning games too, and everybody would be fresher for the next round if you had a fifth set tiebreak in the fifth set. So he agrees with you, Catherine. Michael says at some point someone needs to win. There are more rounds to play, and an unending fifth set is unfair to the survivor. So, backing yeah, you up. I'd suggest that would be a Blazkowicz-esque <laughs> argument. Yeah, uh, poor old Blaz was uh, was on an IV and was having a full body cramp. He was in a terrible state. So, uh, you know, there is a serious point to all this, isn't there? Uh, Rian, who says, I prefer playing at a final set, but in modern tennis, it's very harsh to have these mega marathons. Yeah, that's a that's a good point I think actually because tennis is different to how it used to be it's you know more often than not it's a slog it's a slog from the back of the court it is not you know uh, serve volley you know big one two tennis anymore what about a compromise Matt Zemek uh, says at 12 all you've essentially played six sets not five so players have been given a chance to win honourably in a fifth set without a tiebreak at six all so why not play the tiebreak at 12-all? Not a bad idea at all. Um, I quite like that. OK. Uh, Matt, we're up for that, mate. So uh, if you want to put that in the rules, we'll, um, we'll back you up. Uh, Erica says... Um, hold on a minute. M- oh, this was an interesting one. Metal rackets lost us the touch and slow courts and serve and volley. Uh, have lost us serve and volley. People only care about losing what's destroying players' bodies. Goodness. Um, Michael R. says a fifth set tiebreak in all but the championship match. So the suggestion being that you play out the final without a tiebreak in the fifth set. How about that one? I'm not in favour of the format of, of, of the final being any different to the format of preceding matches. It used to have... Masters series or Masters 1000s as they are now, the finals were five set matches, whereas preceding rounds were. Oh, I love that. Three. Did you? Yeah, it gives a little bit of extra to, to the final. And we had it at the Olympics as well. You know, you can play best of three all the way through and then have the big five set classic in the fifth. Yeah, the spectator in me um, agrees with you, but sort of the in, in principle, it just doesn't doesn't feel quite right to me. But. I'm not. I'm not dismissing that idea. I, but that that fifth set in in that Wimbledon final, um, my heart broke for Andy Roddick, and uh, I, I can't help but feel there's a good chance it would have been different. Were he not? It's. I. I'm repeating myself, but I feel that serving first is too great an advantage Federer fans are throwing their iPads out of the window listening to this uh, Rian says maybe have the final set tie break but instead of at six or Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Or maybe have it at 10 all. So we've got another one there. We've got 12-12, and we've got 10-10 as a point to have a, a fifth set tiebreak. So she said it would be like football's extra time before the penalty shootout. Nice idea. Can I make one extra point? I'm, no. I might be hammering, I, I might be uh, over-egging the cake a bit here. But imagine, I, I'm imagining that I'm serving, imagine I'm serving at 5-6 and it's 15-30. This is a really big stretch for the imagination. Catherine serving <laughs> for the Wimbledon title at 5-6, 15-30. Go on, Catherine. Tell me that 15-30 doesn't feel different at 5-6 to how it feels at 6 all. Two points away from, from going out of the match. Tell me it doesn't feel different. Well, when I was in the Wimbledon... No, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right, because you've got that little bit of extra... You can hear um, the commentators saying, oh, he's two points away now. You can hear it. You can hear we it. can. <laughs> I hope the bloody players don't. <laughs> but I'm sure they can. They know that that's what they're saying. You know that Jim Curry or Bruce McAvaney or... Free McMillan is saying, oh, Djokovic is two points away here now. The, the, he can smell victory. I wonder if players do s- sort of go up to the line and think, oh, I wonder what the commentators are saying now. Oh, I bet they do. bet they do. They're wondering, what's David Law saying right now? Oh, yeah, I don't even know who I am. Uh, Shaheen Ashraf says, uh, uh, hold on a minute, what's he saying? He said the top four guys are capable of playing five hours and then recovering for the next match. Absolutely no problem. Keep it as it is. Uh, Eggy, what a great name for a, for a Twitter uh, handle, at the boiled egg, says, what I'd like to see is in the final set, player A has one service game, then B has two, then A has two. So it's almost like a tie-break tie format, but within games. Uh, I see how that solves part of the problem, but it's quite a stretch then, isn't it? You're getting quite... We're manipulating the rules quite substantially here. Without so. doing that, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I see how that I see how that resolves some of the issues we've discussed, but perhaps it creates some new ones. So maybe it's a maybe on that one. Catherine's given it a maybe. You know, that's not too bad, Iggy. Uh, Joel Drucker, who is a colleague of ours in the media, uh, says, "How about a tiebreak at ten ten in the decider? Uh, Isna and Mahu was absurd." Uh, we have uh, Bob, who says, yes, it should be a fifth set tiebreak, especially with baseliners. I'm weary of watching 30-shot mat rallies in hour five. Um, we have uh, Scotty, who says, Isner and Mahu say tiebreaker in the fifth set at Wimbledon, please. <laughs> well, do you remember John McEnroe saying, commentating on that match, that he reckoned that those two guys were shot for would be shot for six months after that match, and I know it was that was an absolute extreme example. But I mean, there are extreme examples. And Australian Open, it's okay. So perhaps forty-three degrees is is the upper end of of the extreme conditions that we can experience here. But forty degrees high thirties isn't ridiculous here. It, it happens, and uh, it, if that combines with a with a 16-14 fifth set that is a lethal combination um, and I, I, I think that needs to be a factor to be considered Not it's obviously not as much of an issue at the French Open at Wimbledon where it's 
14 degrees and drizzly a lot of the time. What are you saying about our weather? Uh, Caroline Paquin says fifth set tiebreakers are flipping a coin. We saw it at the US Open. Quite a few players mounting a, a love to come back in sets only to lose in a fifth set tiebreak. I find it unfair and it would also have lost us many other great battles that you didn't name. Sorry, Caroline. I'll try and name them next time. But uh, I understand where you're coming from there. Uh, Catherine's grimacing. Uh, Patrice Zinkova says after five full sets, a tiebreak is needed. Enough already let's not kill our players please uh, also says how about the double super tie break if if it's six all oh yeah you know like in the champion store we have the champions tie break you know rather than having a sort of first to seven what about having the first to ten quite like that as well quite like that so it's it's still sort of setting it apart it's still saying you know this needs to be this needs to be something bigger you need to do something a bit extra to win this match but uh, it, it's still creating an, an end point, which is what we've been suggesting needs to happen. So, yeah, that's another maybe. Stephen White says uh, the fifth set tiebreak is the most exciting moment in tennis. Aaron Jonathan Wood says tiebreaks favour players with a bigger game. It's not a fair way to decide a fifth set. Keep it the way it is. Vicky says... Why should sport change for TV? Sport is unpredictable. Swings in momentum, tension, nerves, magic. Oh, there's more to it than TV, though. Come on. I, I, I can't make my points anymore. I'm going to be an utter bore. But I, I don't think much of... M- many of the arguments I've made um, have been related to, to TV. So if you disagree with, with me, then fine. But I don't think it's all about TV. Oh, Catherine spoken. Uh, Randy Walker, who's a colleague of ours in the media, um, says, uh, how much more exciting would it be at five all in the fifth set tiebreaker and the winner of the next point has match point? Well, I know what you're, I know what you're saying there, Randy. Uh, Daniel. The beauty of the tiebreaker is that it alternates. Some, somebody will have match point and then and provided it goes with serve, somebody will have one player will have match point and then the other player will have a match point. That is entirely fair, in my view. Okay, well, there we go. Um, Daniel says, I, I, I was mentioning on Twitter that uh, the, the fifth set tiebreak gives you a, a guaranteed crescendo. He says it's not necessarily a guaranteed crescendo if someone wins a tiebreak 7-1, at least not any more than breaking to love. But if they've already made it to six all in the fifth set, you'd be very surprised if it ends up being an entirely one-sided tiebreak, wouldn't you? You'd be surprised, but it could happen. Could happen, but then equally, somebody could break to love at, at six all, and then hold their serve to love, and there you go, another damp squib of a climax. She's very stubborn, isn't she? Uh, G fifty one Dan says, "I like this the uncertainty over when a match will end, and that someone has to break to win a fifth set. How about swapping who gets to serve first at six all and nine all? So it's not always the same guy serving to stay in the match." Like that, like that a lot. Who is that? That was G51 Dan. You're getting the thumbs up here, Dan. Well done, G51 Dan. That's not bad at all. Very, very interesting. Right, well, I think that just about covers everybody's uh, everybody's view or a good selection of the views out there. So thanks for getting in touch with us here on the Tennis Podcast. Uh, do 
do send some abuse my way. I really do enjoy it on Twitter. Just be just be generally sort of well mannered, and uh, and I'll take your best shots. Um, well, we we did have another Twitter uh, challenge for you, which was was me suggesting that um, tennis was miles better pre Hawkeye, miles more fun. You got all these rants from McEnroe. We would never have had John McEnroe before Hawkeye. It was all inspired by Heather Watson and. Um, uh, Jerzy Janowicz having a bit of a row the other day on a non-Hawkeye court so I put that out to Twitter and I got all sorts of responses uh, about it we don't really have time for that on this week's tennis podcast because we've, we've always been already been going on for a while and we've got Martina Hingis coming up now so we'll do that in the next edition uh, and first of all just before we get to the Martina Hingis interview Catherine what are your memories of Hingis I mean she was World number one at 16 and retired from her first stage of her career at 22. It's one of the incredible stories of tennis in recent years. It is, and it's something that looking at today's women's game seems unthinkable now, doesn't it? That a a 14 or 15-year-old could rise to the top of the game. I mean, it's so physical now and so, so much about power. And I used to love watching her play because she just understood a tennis court so so well um and it was almost sort of a a game of logic or 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 mathematics you know the way she the way she calculated her her rally she always seemed to be thinking three shots ahead um and uh i think the game misses a bit of the hingis touch these days um and i think it's a shame that perhaps her style of play seems out of date now which is which is an unbelievable thing to be saying agnieszka radvanska tries to keep it alive a little bit doesn't she but we've just seen her knocked off the court by lena it's 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 tough these days it is tough it's it's great that agnieszka radvanska is out there doing that and is um and is having so much success with it but um but it seems to be against the odds success rather than I don't think I think people coming up look at her and think god that that's winning the hard way the easy way is to to get a massive forehand and to bludgeon people off the court um the craft I guess is is lost a little bit um and Hingis was crafty on the court I have to say my most vivid memory of her um was her losing first round to Dokic is well, that's is not a very nice champion. memory is it it's not, but I remember how how big a deal that was, and and that was Dokic announcing herself on the scene. I also remember her French Open final against um, Steffi Graf. Yeah, yeah, Steffi Graf, and she she rounded the net to point out a mark in the clay. <laughs> <laughs> had a cracking old row with the umpire, and she got booed and whistled on Is the that court. The same one where she did the underarm serve. It was, yeah. yeah, and it was the year that Agassi um, and Graf both won the title. Same year. And romance was born. Indeed. Oh. Well, I always used to love watching Martina Hingis play, not only because of the way she played, because, but also because of the way she was quite happy to sort of gently trash talk the Williams sisters in the media. I mean, I think she gets on really well with them these days. But, uh, you know, she was very confident in her own abilities. She, she never says, oh, I wish I had such and such person's shot or serve. She, she was quite happy with her own game. And she was very forthright, very outspoken, very thoughtful, and she was the same when she spoke to us here on the Tennis Podcast in an interview that originally aired on BBC Radio 5 Live. And uh, here's Martina Hingis talking to me a few days ago. Well, hello, Martina Hingis. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, very well indeed. Great to see you here at the Australian Open, which is a tournament that, that really did make your name, isn't it? 
Well, definitely. It's, it was always nice to come back here and kick off the season uh, here in Australia. I mean, coming from the European winter, everybody was happy to come here. I mean, still is. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a great place for me to come back. I mean, lots of memories and great ones especially, yes. Six finals in a row I was reading earlier today. What, what was it like in, the, in that first year? What, what are your memories of that? Well, my first year I was uh, like seeded three and once, um, you know, the first or second seed, they lost earlier in the tournament. I all of a sudden started feeling the pressure in the quarterfinal, semifinal. I was like, oh, this is my chance. I, oh, I was 16 at that time and I felt like, okay, I've won tournaments before, but not a Grand Slam. And I felt like the way was open for me to do that. And, um, you know, playing Mary Pierce in the finals uh, was a great opponent. And, um, yeah, I had to give my best. And, uh I was able to do so, and um, it was a great feeling to hold up the trophy in front of the Australian fans. Yeah. You mentioned you were 16. That seems extraordinary now to think that that a player at 16 could have could do that because players don't do that these days at that sort of age. Well, I think mainly part of it is is also okay. The game has gotten more physical. It's um, the technology is different. The, um, but also because the girls, they're not allowed to play as many tournaments, uh, which I totally disagree with this age eligibility rule because I think the girls should be open uh, and free with, at the age of 16. I mean, I was already two years on the tour. I mean, I had some rules as well, but not as strict as they are these days that the girls are only free to play um, the full schedule from 18. So I think, you know, they lose in a way two years of time and... Um, yeah, it's uh, hard to, to pick it up uh, when you're 18 or 20, uh, when you need that experience. And um, so that's why we see champions who are older these days. Yeah, yeah and of course, I, mean, I was looking that, that you retired for the first time at, at, at just 22. I mean, it, it seems extraordinary when a lot of players are starting to, to make their name at that sort of age. Did, did you feel that you missed out at all by playing as young as, as, young as you did? No, not at all, actually, because I felt like, yeah, I had... Uh, looked after myself already uh, at 22 and I had a g- still you know a great future great, uh, bright future ahead of me and I mean still of course there's uh, great years of tennis and I mean I had a little comeback and um, which I'm still very proud of and um, I don't know it's uh, I think sometimes also the priorities change and it's just um, I played juniors already uh, when I was like yeah 12 and 13 so I had that experience and um it was just a different time, I believe, as well, because, you know, playing uh, against Steffi Graf, Arantxa Sanchez at that time, who were like 10 years older than me, you st- they all started young as well. So I wasn't the only one at that time. But, um, yeah, they had long careers. I had a shorter one, but still, you know, it's a 10-year career. It's not like um, only one one-hit wonder. <laughs> you won your first title here 15 years ago. I mean, not, not long after that, you were playing against Serena Williams, who is still dominating the tennis circuit today that that is extraordinary isn't it yeah it is definitely but um it also tells you know how uh, great the sisters were when when they played you know like in 2001 and 2 when they were uh, at their best so um and now still it's amazing but she's always been very smart about her schedule she never played as many tournaments i mean they had a lot of breaks and um i mean an injury here and there but they were very smart about it and I think that's why you know she's played like half of the matches at that time that I played uh, with the doubles and everything played mixed doubles so uh, maybe the age of 25 when I had my comeback she only played like half of the 
the matches or the tournaments that I did. So she still had like the five years ahead of me. <laughs> you you had some victories against her, including uh, an amazing one, eight six in the third. Here, uh, I, I was looking up earlier. Players today, they, I mean, there's some great players out there. Victoria Azarenka won the title here last year. Maria Sharapova has been around for a while, but Azarenka has been dominated by Serena Williams the past year. If you were coaching one of these other players who played against Serena Williams, what would you tell them to do against her? <laughs> well, uh, right now I'm ha- actually helping a couple of girls from the uh, Muratoglu Academy uh, close by Paris. So, And actually he's her coach now, you know, Patrick Muratoglu. So <laughs> it's funny, it's um, both of the girls, we were in the training camp in uh, Mauritius and um, Nastya Pavlichenkova, he, she made finals in Brisbane and played Serena, so I was very happy about that. And uh, it was a big success for the academy. And uh, we'll see how they do here. But if I had to coach one of those, it's, it's hard. Just like, you know, stay steady and uh, put as many balls as uh, possible and, and uh, focus on your serve. But if someone like Serena's serve is very hard to read. She's very strong on the first shots, serve and return. So... Just got to stay out there and, and fight. <laughs> Is that what you used to have success with against her back then? Because, I mean, to, to look at you standing side by side, it almost looks like two different two different sports almost, but yet you were able to compete with her. Well, I was happy not having to be in the box ring against Serena, so it's still you had your white lines uh, on the tennis court, so she still had to put the balls inside the court. and all that. Um, Yeah, but it, I don't know. It, I think it was a different time, and... Uh, it's hard to see or say what it would have been like today but uh, you got to work with the weapons uh, what you have today and the girls they're bigger they're stronger they're more physical so I think they have to fight with their weapons but um, yeah definitely the to be consistent um, against a player like Serena Maria or uh, Victoria it's uh, it's the most important thing could you see anybody beating her if she plays well this fortnight at this point no <laughs> to be honest uh uh, if Serena is on, I mean, as she was probably 10 years ago, um, she had the Serena slam already and uh, was pretty much the person to beat uh, as, it, as she is today again. You know, when she's really hungry, when she wants it, it's uh, it's very tough to beat her. We were talking about the the ages that you, that you started playing and that you don't agree with the age rules that they have now and they're not allowed to play as much as early. Of course, we have in Britain Laura Robson who won Wimbledon Juniors at 14 and now at 19 she's she's starting to make some waves. She beat Lee Nark in Pleisters uh, at the US Open and, and she's starting to, to she's in the top 50 now. Have you seen much of her? What do you think of her? Yeah, I think uh, she's definitely improved. Uh, last year she had some... Uh, better results at the end of the season and it's uh, I think it's important you know when you uh, like I said she needed those two years you know to become from a junior player uh, on the WTA tour it is different because you have to be um, you need that experience of playing against top players and when you don't have the chance to do that I mean as I did I played against Mary Pierce Steffi and or Conchita Martinez in the beginning they were killing me but you have to find a way to beat them and only with playing against these uh, top players uh, you find a way you find a solution and uh, no, she's been giving the chance now for the last two years and she learned and she worked hard on her game and uh, it, it's paying off so hopefully we'll see a lot more of her in the room. she's got a great potential so she definitely have the she has the game being a lefty as well to to go uh, a lot further but having won that Wimbledon juniors at 14 you think that if she'd have been allowed maybe at 16 to to have played professionally straight away it might have benefited her 
<laughs> at this point it's hard to tell because I mean there's a lot of ifs but uh, maybe who knows um, but she, she still had uh, a few matches that uh, a few chances that she could have um, taken the profit of it and uh, it's just all an experience whether it comes at 16 or 17 or it comes now at 20 at the end of the day it doesn't matter you just gotta uh, beat the top players and and uh, play your best and play your heart out you gotta fight to win to be become the winner at the end of the tournament it doesn't matter at what time you do it you mentioned she's a lefty do you think that there is an opening out there for a player with her slightly different skills I know Petra Kvitova is also a lefty and has won Wimbledon do you think that sort of player there is an opening there for somebody to come through and make some real impact well of course um, being a lefty does definitely helps uh, already on the server side because she has a big serve first and second and uh, she, if she could work it into her advantage it, that would be a great thing and um, I'm sure she works with her coaches on that and uh, she's doing a lot better so um, yeah I'd like to see her up there. Just just a final point we're sitting outside here it's it's pretty chilly today actually it's one of the few days in Melbourne which which isn't hot and we have had some we had saw some scenes uh, last week where people were frying eggs on on the court to prove how hot it was no hotter day I think in history than the one you played in the final against Jennifer Capriati which is really the one that was responsible for bringing the heat rule in here what are your memories of that day uh, my memory of that uh, match are that I should have won in straight sets and not having to play the third one. <laughs> um, I remember I just watched it on YouTube like a year ago or something and I was like, wow, I was up a set and four love. I don't know how I gave up that one. <laughs> but I mean, she uh, turned the momentum to her side. I think it was like 4-2, 40-15. I didn't make that game. Probably would have been different, but one point can can make a difference in uh, in tennis and uh, that's what happened at that time I still worked it out to have a couple match points but at that time it was already too late I was like like you said a little fried egg already <laughs> you know it was like getting uh, the heat was getting into my brain and um, I mean she's a great champion she's a great player everyone knows that and uh, she definitely deserved it in the third set to win but what was, what was it like trying to deal with those conditions what is it like well, I didn't deal that well, right? <laughs> so, I mean, she had the advantage, uh, you know, growing up in Florida and being, um, you know, to, to be used to that heat. And Florida can be very hot. I mean, I still have a home there and I've been practicing there, but not really in, in, under those conditions. Um, I mostly trained in um, December in Europe, so it was not quite the same training in minus 10 degrees <laughs> well, okay we had indoors but still it's not uh, definitely not the same as when you come into the heat but I mean that's no excuse I mean same for both players but uh, she ended up winning the last point and is it hard to concentrate when it's that hot I mean you know it, it seems almost overwhelming at times when it really gets hot here well it's not only I think it's more the legs that they stop to function. Your brain still wants it, and you, you want to run, and you want to get to the balls, and you want to play. When, but you feel like your body doesn't really cope with um, what your brain tells it <laughs> tells it to do. So it's uh, it's pretty much that. But when you're out there, you don't really think you're so into the match, and you're trying to do your best. And um, I think that was, uh, yeah, I, I think it was the only time that I really felt like it was really hot. But I don't know. It, <laughs> I was like, what, 19, 20 at that time. So um, 
different time yeah <laughs> should have been in better shape what else do I want to say right <laughs> two final points um, one is you were a player that, that used to beat players not just with brute power you used to beat them with skill and with sort of angles and all that kind of thing a little bit similar to, to the way that Andy Murray has developed his career what are your thoughts on the way he broke through last year can that be the the starting point for, for more success in your in your eyes well, definitely it'll be great to see that but I think uh, the turning point was also he hired Ivan Lendless as his coach which I think it was a great great idea and he helped him um, uh, on developing his game and believing in it and I mean I'd like to watch one of their practice actually I haven't done that and I wasn't able to uh, to see that but I, I'm sure you know he was a big part in it I mean he's always had the game but he needed someone to really tell him and, and, and believe in it and um, give him that kind of support uh, I guess and tactically uh, Ivan Lendl was one of the you know best players ever he was such a uh, you know, strategian. Uh, I mean, chess. He played tennis like chess, and I mean, he was more of a physical player, but also, I mean, his brain. I think he's very lucky to have him on his side. Absolutely. And the final thing is, what are you doing these days with yourself? What what does what is life going to hold for Martina Hingis in the years to come? Would you like to to do what Ivan Lendl's doing and be a coach and be a real influence on a top player? You mentioned you have been working with some players in the academy. Is that something you'd like to do to put your imprint on somebody and help them tactically to to maybe win a slam? Well, I mean, uh, it's been a lot of fun to work with uh, Anastasia Pavlichenkova in the last uh, three, four weeks. And you see that the success uh, came right away. I mean, she's definitely worked hard. She has her coach uh, on the side who travels with her. But, I mean, sometimes a little input can can do uh, wonders. And, um, you know, I've been hitting with her as well here. And I hope she's uh, going to go a long way. And if it doesn't happen here at the Australian Open, I, I think she's already been up there. Uh, she was number one junior, and I'd like to to see her a lot further uh, um, in the top ten. Definitely at, at this year, that's the goal to do. Still some thrilling action to come here at the Australian Open, and you can follow every single ball with our BBC Radio commentary team here in Melbourne. Tune in to 5 Live and 5 Live Sports Extra, and we'll be back with the tennis podcast soon. See you then. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiancé. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>